Law, liberty, life in Jesus, knowing how it all works. This is part 21, three more weeks or so in Galatians. And then I want to do an extended series on the atonement. In my place, condemned he stood right through the whole Bible, what the Bible says about the atonement. I think there's a lot of bad thinking on the atonement in the church today. This morning, why Canadian lawmakers can never transform human hearts Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 26. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds. You know. (laughs) Hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. I'm trying to fight that one right now. (laughs) Selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Some people don't get in to the kingdom of God. You just need to settle that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if that's the case, why, why, why do we still struggle with sin? That's interesting. If we live by the Spirit, 25, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Why is that word? It doesn't seem to fit there. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. A lot of Christian people don't like the lists of specific sins that Paul so frequently cites in his letters. And I know of bright, intelligent Christians who have been duped by careless theologians to think that whenever somebody mentions a list, they're being legalistic. And of course, they might be, but they might not be. What what they forget is Paul, who uses these lists more than anyone else, except maybe Jesus, who used a lot of lists. Paul's also the one who speaks the most against legalism. So we need to note, in addition, that Paul writes this list of sins of the flesh right in the same context in which he calls Christians to walk in the Spirit. That means, at least in Paul's mind, listing things that people shouldn't do is not contrary to walking in the Spirit. It's actually part of walking in the Spirit. I have a wonderful old book in my library I hadn't read in years. It's a book called Christian Commitment by... Edward J. Carnell, now deceased, long deceased professor at Fuller Seminary. Listen to these words as he talks about the nature of God. He says, God never urges himself to be good because he is good. That is, his nature always inclines irresistibly toward righteousness. God is never torn by evil desires. God is light In him is no darkness at all, so he does not need to be reminded about the duty of his deity, 
No one needs to say, now today, God, mind your manners, do what is right, avoid evil, remember the commandments. No. When a person is good from root to branch, he does not need to be told to be good. His goodness grows like fruit on a tree. I read that because most of us will know we're not good like that. God is. We aren't. We, we, so we need to be warned about the deeds of the flesh in lists the way God does not need to be reminded. Lists like the one Paul and Jesus used are reminders that, well, we need to take the leanings of our nature towards sin very seriously. That's, that, that's what Paul meant in 5.17 when he said the, the desires of the flesh and spirit, are, they're opposed to each other. They're fighting each other so that you do not do what you want. We studied that last week. But while lists, I think, are necessary, they must be. They're in God's inspired word over and over again. They can also be dangerous. This is hard preaching without moving my feet because I'm afraid of this microphone. If I look like a statue, I'm really not inside. It's just outside. Lists can be dangerous when they're treated as ends in themselves rather than the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. What I'm trying to say is, if the crucifixion of Christ and the power of the Spirit are left out of the picture, then these lists that you read, which are designed to keep the uh, gravitational pull of the flesh towards sin, designed to hold it at bay. That's what they're designed to do. But they also, they also, if we're not careful, they can feed and inflame sin in a different way. And we need to be careful about this. Let's say, for example, I'm a, like most of the people you might know, I'm a pretty good moral person who uses resolve and willpower to achieve the best, most righteous life I possibly can. Well, there's a great sense of accomplishment in that. When I see a list of moral vices like this in the Bible, especially if I respect the source, like scriptures, and I can check off many of the things, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I haven't done that. I can feel that I've pretty successfully restrained my own fallen appetites and desires. And the more successful I am at doing that, the more I have used that list to feed my own pride. So see, there's two kinds of sins committed around a list like that. One is I break the rules and I'm a sinner. The other is, I keep a lot of the rules, and I'm proud of meriting God's favor. Both of those are sins of the flesh in two different directions. So, remember, flesh does not just mean body in most of Paul's writings. That's why some of those deeds of the flesh in 19 to 21, they really aren't outward deeds at all. Envy, it's not a deed. 
nor is jealousy, nor is pride, nor is arrogance, nor is lust, nor is greed. Those are kind of inward things. They aren't really outward deeds at all. And they can thrive in the heart even if the outward visible actions, if I'm able to control those things pretty well, I really can't do anything about those inward sins. So there's two kinds of sins when you see a list of things like that in the New Testament. If I fail to give due regard to the list and I'm careless, well then I'm, I commit sins of immorality. I don't mean just sexual sins, just immoral acts. And if I keep the list pretty well, I venture into pride and legalism, earning my salvation because I keep the list pretty favorably. Either way, I'm in trouble with God because both those things, failure to keep the list in sin Success in keeping the list in pride. Both are failures before God. Let's work through some of these points now this morning. Point number one. Let me just restate it. All through the book of Galatians, Paul has shown that the flesh manifests itself in, in two ways, not just one. First, the flesh manifests itself in rebellion to God's ways. Secondly, the flesh manifests itself in pride in earning God's ways through merit. Before the fall, there was only one way to sin. Disobedience to God's commands. Since the fall, there are two ways to sin. Disobedience to God's commands and attempting to pay God back with my own good works and deeds, earning his favor through religion, through morality. And what Paul does in the book of Galatians is he starts with the second kind of sin, the sin of pride, keeping the law. That's in chapters 1 through 4. And he wraps up with the second kind of sin, breaking the law, transgressions. He deals with that in Galatians 5 and 6. So, so he, he begins his letter dealing with the false teachers, remember? Coming from Jerusalem, saying that these Christians in Galatia, they need to, in addition to trusting in Jesus and receiving his grace, they need to come under the old covenant law, keep the rules of circumcision, diet. And Paul has taken four chapters to say, no, if you try to earn it through your good works, you're separating yourself from Christ. He says that very clearly. 5.4, you who are trying to be justified by the law, this is pride in keeping the list. That's what that is. If you're trying to be justified by the law, you are, look at, alienated from Christ, fallen from grace. Because this grace and this law don't blend. Paul's nothing if not direct. If I want pride in my moral accomplishments, well, then I can't, I can't live in the grace of Jesus. It's one or the other, but it's never both. 
So then in the last half, last chapter and a half of his letter, he deals with the second kind of sin, that kind of rebellion, carelessness before the law of God, where he says in 5.13, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't think, well, I'm covered by grace. I can just do what I want. After all, it's not by works anyway. God loves me. Jesus died on the cross for me. He's not about to kick me out just for a couple sins that I commit. I think I'll be fine. Paul says, no, no, no. Don't use your freedom like that. Don't use your freedom like that. So what we're seeing, I hope you can think it all through, is this massive picture of biblical salvation. Through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, my guilt has been forgiven. Praise God. In addition, through the indwelling presence of the Spirit, there's a new motive for righteousness. I'm not out to just dutifully keep the law. I love the grace of Christ and Jesus Christ, and that motivates pure living. I, I love my wife. I have no interest in any other women. But it's my love for my wife that causes me to live like that. If, if some husband came home and just said, you know, I, man, this marriage, I know we've been married 10 years. Gee whiz. Do you realize you're the only woman I can sleep with for the rest of my life? Man, I never reckoned on that when I married you. Oh, man. This is really restrictive. I can't do anything anymore. Well, my wife's not going to feel very loved. <laughs> so, so here's what happens. I come to Jesus. I'm unsaved. I come to Jesus. I ask for his pardon, his grace. And what I get is mercy for all my sins. But that's not all I get. As I grow in Christ, his spirit lives in me so that I don't just easily drift back into the same sins. I'm not perfect, but I don't easily drift back into the same sins because there's a love for Christ there that wasn't there before. Those are the two changes that accompany real salvation. Point number two. Paul calls the vices of the flesh works or deeds, depending on your translation. And he calls the virtues of the spirit fruit. You probably haven't thought about it, but I want to ask the question, why? Why those two names? Because there's a sense in which they don't make any sense. Galatians 5, 19 to 22. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, anything similar. I'm warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit, there's the other word, so the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Here's what I used to think. I used to think that the vices were called works and the virtues were called fruit because this proved that the Holy Spirit had produced these virtues by his power rather than mine, like fruit grows. Whereas the vices are called works because they're a result of my own contrived efforts. I went for most of my life thinking that. And if you think that, fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I started to see that there are problems with that explanation. Here's one. First, fruit grows naturally. But those fruits of the Spirit don't grow that easily in my life. Maybe they do in yours. I find they take a lot of work. And the sins that Paul calls works... I find really easy to do over and over again. Do you get what I'm saying? So in a sense, those labels didn't make sense to me. I'm not naturally patient when I'm wronged. I don't naturally love my enemies. Sometimes it's hard to keep my temper. And on the other hand, the vices that Paul describes as works, they don't require much work at all. They're just the traits of character that come naturally to me. It, it takes no work at all to be impatient or unforgiving or greedy. It's not hard for me. I like the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Sin grows in the human heart like lard grows on a pig. That's what I find. Anybody else in this condition? So, what is Paul trying to say with these labels? Works of the flesh that don't take any work at all. Fruit of the Spirit that seems to take quite a bit of effort. I said I've come to see these terms quite differently. I don't think Paul is talking about the effort required to generate either one. Bad trees, good trees bear fruit with the same amount of effort. I think the difference lies in another direction. First, think of the works of the flesh. So, A, now. I believe Paul calls the vices of the flesh works, not because they require more effort, but because they're, they're attempts to pay back my debt to God. These vices, they always stem from a sense of entitlement, of rights being won, scores being evened out. This is why people express anger. They feel they've been shortchanged in some way. That's why people envy others. They don't have something that someone else has. They feel they're being left out or cheated. This is why there are disputes, dissensions. This is where they come from. People feel they are right. Their position is being ignored. All of those vices are called works, not because they take effort. They don't. They're called works because they're the attempt of the flesh to have God and others pay the wages of my satisfaction. 
unlike the fruit of the Spirit, which begins with the outflow of love, the flesh sees everyone as its debtor. That's what Paul means in his closing definition of the life of the works of the flesh. He says it in 526. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Look at that word. Look at those words, provoking one another. This is a vivid picture of the works of the flesh. Not working in the sense of earning something, but working because separated from grace, the flesh feels itself entitled already to all the satisfaction it can find on its own terms. The flesh always feels owed. The flesh always feels owed. The direction of the flesh is like this. The direction of the spirit is like this. Everybody get it? Remember the flesh? It's the vacuum cleaner. It just sucks up everything. My argument, my rights, my joy, my satisfaction, my fulfillment, my terms. It goes like this. That's the flesh. It's, the Bible calls, talks about the wages of sin. That's the flesh. You owe. You owe me. Face to face with this profound theological truth. Remember, the flesh works, the flesh works like a vacuum cleaner. Because in rejecting Jesus Christ, his grace, his shed blood, the cross, the flesh has no sense, no sense of grace received. It can never operate fueled by gratitude. The flesh is constantly taking from the outside. It constantly takes, it is constantly owed. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is like, it's not like a vacuum cleaner. It's like, well, Jesus said, it's like a fountain. It overflows. The Holy Spirit promotes the greatness of Christ in the heart, not the greatness of self. The Holy Spirit prompts an understanding of mercy and grace as the fuel for everything else in my Christian walk. And this, says Paul, this is a fountain of freedom, both to love others, fulfilling the law of God, and at the same time to overcome those inward cravings of the flesh. Look at the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. I say then, walk by the Spirit. You will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. So once again, I believe the terms works and fruit describe not the amount of effort required, but the kind of heart that each generates. The flesh always sucks inward. The spirit generates humble gratitude that flows outward. Three. to continue walking in the power of the Spirit. I think this is really important. To continue walking in the power of the Spirit, it's important to concentrate on the two ways of being crucified with Christ. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. 
We've already studied these words. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, I think to get the clearest possible picture of what that verse means, com compare it with another verse that we've already studied that says something so similar, people don't notice the difference, but it's saying something different. Look at, look at these two verses together. I have been crucified with Christ, okay? And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now look at 524. We just read this. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Do you see the difference? Have been, I have been crucified with Christ. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I mean, the difference is subtle, but it's extremely important for moving ahead in the spirit-filled life of holiness. In 2.20, my role in the whole process is passive. I have been crucified with Christ. In 5.24, my role is entirely active. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Do you see the difference in those two statements? In the first case, my crucifixion takes place in Christ Jesus. In the second, I am the one doing the crucifying. In the first, my involvement is one of, well, it's placing my faith, right? He says so. It's, it's placing my faith in Christ's crucifixion on my behalf. His grace, his pardon. I receive it by faith. In the second, I'm actively slaying the dragon of my own desires. Perhaps that's the way Paul would have us think of this process of growing in holiness. Perhaps we should stop thinking in terms of just making a decision, a phrase that really isn't used in the New Testament anywhere, and we should start thinking of the Christian life as faith in God's forgiveness, and then we should think of it as slaying the dragon. And that battle with the dragon, it's a good image, because in the book of Revelation, the dragon is Satan. He's identified. That battle with the dragon is an ongoing battle. True, the dragon has been mortally wounded through Christ's death on the cross. Its demise is certain, but in my heart and in your heart, it still raises its head to snort and puff and spit out fire and venom against my freedom in Christ. It's not just enough to love Jesus. It's very important, but that dragon, he's got to be sliced and diced and jabbed and stabbed on a daily basis. Can I win that battle in my own strength? Not in a million years. Not in a million years. Paul's already made it perfectly clear. We spent all last week studying it. I say then, 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. This is why, by the way, Canadian lawmakers, God bless them, but they can never transform the human heart. I mean, the very fact that we need these laws proves the uh, untouched depravity still living in the human heart. Every court in the land proves we do very desperately need to be called to goodness over and over again. Our country can't hold on to a vague belief in God, however we conceive him to be, as a leftover value of generations gone by and expect to see changes in human hearts. It'll never, ever happen. Hearts can only be transformed through a redeeming God who supplies his spirit to work in our hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can give you victory over the flesh. He changes the motive of my efforts, but he doesn't remove my efforts. He changes, he changes the motive for my efforts. It's love, not duty. But he doesn't diminish my efforts. We live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step. First we commit. Then the Spirit empowers. You have to make the decision to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. Remember last Sunday when I called Chris up here and we demonstrated how hard it is to lead someone when they don't want to walk? So don't just claim that you've been crucified with Christ. That's beautiful. It's true. Slay the dragon. The passions for yourself. Give the Lord's Supper more meaning than just hearkening back to an event you can't remember because you weren't there. In the power of the Spirit, take up your cross. You, you... You can't make the fruit grow, only the Holy Spirit can, but you can, you can weed the garden, right? You can't make the fruit grow, but you can weed the garden. I will never forget, Rini and I read out of Bible school, went and pastored a little church in Lanigan, Saskatchewan. Lanigan, Saskatchewan, a couple of potash mines, about 1,200 people in a church with about 40 if you had a really good Sunday like Easter. Behind the church, there was a little garden. And when we moved there, it was a mess. And old Mrs. Torwald, she was about 85 then. She came by one day and saw that I hadn't a clue what, which were plants and which were weeds. I didn't know what I was doing. And she fixed it all up. And it just looked great. And I came one day and she was out there, always in a dress. It had to be in a dress and boots and she's working in the garden. And I made the foolish mistake of saying, boy, isn't it great what God can do with a garden like that? And she said, remember what it looked like when God had it all by himself? I 
I, you can't make the carrots grow, but you can weed the garden. Walk in the Spirit, and you'll find the joy of being led in the Spirit. It still takes effort. The motive is changed, but the efforts aren't diminished. And everyone said, bless these truths to our hearts, I pray. Thank you for this Lord's Day. It's been good to be here. Bless us in this closing song of worship. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.